Welcome to the Peds NP, Girls of Pediatric Evidence-Based Practice. I'm Becky Carson, Assistant Professor at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., and today we're going to talk about nutrition in the pediatric critical care patient based on the collaborative guidelines put forth by the Society of Critical Care Medicine and the American Society for Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition, or ASPEN. Stay tuned. We all know that critically ill children admitted to the ICU are at risk of malnutrition, but how to optimize their nutrition can be somewhat of a black box. How can we best support patients who are battling complex, critical illness? The truth is that there remains a great need for more research, but today we will use the SCCM and ASPEN's Guidelines for the Provision and Assessment of Nutrition Support Therapy in the Pediatric Critically Ill Patient to discuss best practices in nutrition management in the critically ill patient from ages one month to 18 years who stays in the PICU for more than two to three days. I really like the layout of these guidelines because the format of each recommendation begins with a question, which is then answered by the most current evidence-based practice and expert opinion. And it clearly describes the limitations and need for further research in each category. As you understand the limitations of their task, you can also appraise the quality of their recommendations from the evidence where the grade process was used. Let's begin with a discussion on nutritional assessment in the critically ill patients. As you may have gathered, the commentary that assessment can be a black box means that it's unclear how to best assess this population. None of our commonly used pediatric nutrition screening or assessment tools are meant for critically ill patients, but the guidelines emphasize the importance to assess nutrition in patients admitted to the ICU within 48 hours. So how will you do this? You should review anthropometric measurements such as weight and height. Use these to obtain Z-scores for the weight for age, length for age, weight for length in children under age two, or a BMI score in children over two. You should obtain head circumference in children under 36 months. Other key components to assess are the admitting diagnosis, past medical history related to the current illness, the patient's functional status and diet or nutritional status prior to admission, biochemical lab analysis if needed, and a nutrition-focused physical exam. A great example of this came in our class discussion of a school-aged girl admitted with a CNS infection who was ill for a week prior to the admission with poor PO intake. But she also had some subacute or even chronic malnutrition based on the family's low socioeconomic status and geographic location of their home in a food desert. If access to healthy foods or parental knowledge mean that a family is buying dinner at 7-Eleven, you can guess that there will be some degree of macronutrient and or micronutrient deficiency, even before the critical illness takes place. In our example, the patient was currently intubated and sedated, so all of this information really impacts your global picture of her nutritional status and needs. Your job is not done once you assess the admission nutrition status. It's important to reevaluate at least weekly. Now that you've assessed for malnutrition, it's time to determine the specifics of providing the caloric needs for your patient. I'm gonna skip ahead in the guidelines and talk about enteral versus parenteral nutrition. 
The preferred form of nutrition in an ICU patient is enteral nutrition, initiated within 24 to 48 hours of admission, unless there are contraindications. Tube feeding can be safely administered, even to patients getting vasopressors. So if the gut works, use it. You should monitor for signs of intolerance, such as abdominal distension, blood in the stool, or vomiting. Although gastric residuals are frequently used as a measure of intolerance, there is no strong correlation that is reliable to say that a large gastric residual volume indicates intolerance, so you should not necessarily use that as a reason to discontinue enteral nutrition or delay advancement. The guidelines don't give hard and fast rules for giving gastric versus small bowel feeds or continuous versus bolus feeds. So you'll want to weigh the risks and benefits to each option in each individual patient. For instance, while gastric feeding is more physiologically close to normal, a patient on a ventilator who has a high risk of aspiration might benefit from post-pyloric feeds. They recommend using institutional protocols and a dedicated multidisciplinary nutrition team to guide providers on the initiation and algorithmic advancement of feeds with a goal of getting to two-thirds of goal feeds by the end of the first week. So let's say that for whatever reason, your patient cannot have enteral nutrition initiated within the first week of their ICU stay. Now what will you do? The guidelines have strong recommendations to delay parenteral nutrition in these patients until day eight, since it was associated with a number of improved outcomes compared to the patients who had parenteral nutrition started in the first day of their ICU stay. While this was based on a single multi-center randomized control trial, the data was compelling enough to warrant a strong recommendation. But neither this study nor any other study examined the outcomes of patients started on parenteral nutrition on days two through seven. So I interpret this as you spend the first week trying to get the patient eligible for enteral nutrition. Otherwise, plan to start parenteral nutrition on day eight until further evidence supports otherwise. What formula you'll choose and how much depends on a variety of factors. Indirect calorimetry is the preferred method of calculating calorie needs, but this method is not widely available. They offer alternatives using equations to calculate the measured resting energy expenditure without the addition of stress factor. But they caution that multiple cohort studies have demonstrated that most published predictive equations are inaccurate at predicting the metabolic alterations in critically ill children and lead to unintended overfeeding or underfeeding. Energy expenditure measured by indirect calorimetry for critically ill children is independent of nutrition status, initial diagnosis, or severity of the acute illness. It's really important to get this number right because prolonged caloric deficits in critically ill patients, particularly from inadequate protein intake, may be associated with poor clinical outcomes. We don't want to underfeed or overfeed, and a number of factors can lead to hypermetabolism, think congenital heart disease, fever, stem cell transplant, or hypometabolism, think neuromuscular blockade and mechanical ventilation. So how do you know if you're doing a good job? Well, data. Look at their anthropometric measurement changes over time. Look for hyperglycemia or hypertriglyceridemia and consider whether their prolonged days on mechanical ventilation is a sign of malnutrition. 
If we're lucky, future advances in bedside volumetric CO2 measurements in intubated patients may help us derive energy requirements that are more accurate than the standard equations when indirect calorimetry is not available. I'd argue the most important macronutrient to consider in a critically ill patient is protein. The guidelines emphasize the need to optimize protein intake required to attain a positive nitrogen balance, and they recommend starting at a minimum of 1.5 grams per kilo per day and going even higher in some critically ill infants and children. The big take home here is that you shouldn't be using the RDA. That's the recommended daily allowance. The RDA will underestimate the protein needs of a critically ill child every time, which can lead to poor outcomes. They cite a recent large prospective multicenter observational study of 1,245 children from 15 countries receiving mechanical ventilation, where 985 of the subjects received enteral nutrition, and they concluded that delivery of greater than 60% of prescribed enteral protein goal was significantly associated with a decreased 60-day mortality. There remain questions on the safety and efficacy of high doses of protein and its use in parenteral nutrition. A strong recommendation against the use of immunonutrition in critically ill children. Several dietary components, including glutamine, arginine, nucleotides, omega-3 fatty acids, fiber, antioxidants, selenium, copper, and zinc, have been used in various combinations to modulate dysregulated immune responses induced by critical illness, injury, and surgery. The evidence is gray, inconclusive from multiple perspectives, and simply does not show clinically relevant outcomes for its use in PICU patients. No matter which way you slice it, you can feast on some hearty take-home points here. Assess nutrition early, and often in PICU patients in order to optimize their caloric needs during critical illness. Unless other complicating factors arise, gastric enteral nutrition initiated within 24 to 48 hours of admission to the PICU is the recommended means of providing nutrition to these patients, with a goal of achieving at least two-thirds of their caloric goal obtained through indirect calorimetry within the first week of admission. I hope that you'll like, comment, and subscribe to the PEDSNP, where I try to bring application of our evidence-based concepts to the table in manageable bites. There is no financial support or conflict of interest in this or in any episode of the PEDSNP. You can see show notes and references to this episode and all of my prior episodes at www.thepedsnp.com. I'd love to hear from you, the listeners, on any questions or comments you have. So feel free to comment or send me an email at thepedsnp at gmail.com. I'm Becky Carson. Take care.